Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Surviving intrigue and espionage, working together as a community and surviving a disaster. This week we look at three instances of survival in strange circumstances, from spiders working together in the rainforest of Ecuador to how animals have managed to survive and what ones are the most critical in the aftermath of Deepwater Horizon, plus the sneaky evolutionary history of beetles and ants. When we think about spiders, we all know the classic stories like Charlotte's Web, in which the spider lays its eggs and then dies, of course, as the natural progression of time and hundreds or thousands of small baby spiders are born and they too spread themselves far and wide across the landscape. They don't bunch up, they don't raise their young much in the same way as a dog or a cat or another type of creature would, even ourselves. Spiders have been known to be basically lonely creatures that like to live on their own, in fact thrive when they're on their own. And that was pretty much the underlying assumption, mostly because it's advantageous both food-wise for them to do so and also space-wise. They have enough room to weave their webs. But it's exactly those webs that may have helped them to form large colonies, not unlike those of ants deep in the Ecuadorian rainforest. Researchers from University of British Columbia, UBC, in Canada, have been investigating what happens with these spiders in these rainforests and why some of them are forming strange and wonderfully large colonies, much like ants. Now, this work was read, led by Leticia Aviles, a professor of zoology at UBC, and her, and her graduate student, Catherine Hoffman. And they spent time in the jungles, rainforests of Ecuador. And they noticed that these spiders actually were forming big groups, colony-likes, where the spiders themselves were not only raising their own children, but the children of those around them, in teams, building large and intricate web systems. Now, this is surprising because given where these spiders were living in the rainforest. The key word there is rain. Uh, The heavy rainfall that is prevalent in somewhere around the equator is often destructive and damaging to any webs. Not only that, there's a lot of small other creatures like ant colonies as well that live in these rainforests that can pretty easily destroy any webs. Between them and the, the ants and the rain, it's very, very difficult for a single spider to build a web that will sustain itself. We like to think of spider webs being strong and resilient, But when encountering such conditions, it takes more silk and more resources than a single spider on its own can muster. And what they found was that spiders were forming these colony groups, these family groups, to actually build very large and intricate webs that would survive the challenges of the environment. And it's very unusual because generally we think uh, animals tend to create kin or family groups when it's advantageous for them to raise uh, their offspring. But in this instance, it's showing that actually it's not just the offspring, but the offspring of other spiders they're raising together because the environment makes it so difficult that it works better together rather than apart. It's a nice message for human society as well. To test this theory, what they did was they transplanted spider groups, single-family spider groups, from the higher elevation to the lower elevation, so out of the rain area to the very rainfall-intensive area, and they observed how the spiders actually managed to survive. They also had a couple of control groups to see if isolating them made any difference. And from that, they were able to isolate that if the spiders were on their own, they just couldn't hack it. They really needed to be working in a team uh, to accomplish this. 
And this is not unique uh, to spiders. Obviously, penguins, for example, they huddle together in the cold, uh, forming large groups, colony groups, to survive the buffeting winds of the Arctic or Antarctic, for that matter, and raise them, their children and others together as a community. And that is a similar thing that's going on here with the spiders, except instead of huddling together to protect from the cold, they're huddling together to build amazing webs that can withstand a tropical downpour. So this is some great work being done out of the University of British Columbia. Seven years ago, there was a devastating explosion and oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico in America, known as the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. An oil rig exploded and dumped about 4.9 million barrels of oil deep into the Gulf of Mexico, which spread all across the beaches and the environment around it. In particular, the Louisiana salt marshes ecosystem and environments along that coastal region. And ever since then, scientists have been trying to figure out exactly what has happened, the impact of this disaster on the species, and what has survived or not from this ecological disaster. And previous studies have been looking into animals' importance in the food web or the interconnected food chain, known as the food web, of who eats whom and who feeds who inside the ecosystem. Because then you can see the ripple effects that go through that. But new research led by the Coastal Waters Consortium, which is a team of Louisiana universities, led by Rutgers University postdoctoral researcher Michael McCann, has found the key birds and fish and other animals that should get top priority for conservation efforts because they are pretty much the linchpins of the interconnected food web in that region. When you analyse all of the different species and who ain't who, one of them, for example, is the killifish. And the killifish is a small fish, but it actually is eaten by a lot of the rest of the creatures around it. However, it's not very sensitive to oil, and it's fared pretty well in the wake of the spill. So it's not really something you need to go out and protect, despite its criticality in the food chain. And that's an example of one of the things that this study was looking for. You need to find something that's not only highly interconnected, but also at risk, like something that struggles or is very sensitive to oil. And those are the two factors that were really investigated in this study. Now, terns, gulls, and wading birds, such as herons, are very, very sensitive to oil. And they're also extensively connected to other animals as both prey and as predator. So their loss would be significantly impacting the ecosystem around them. And they're also very affected by oil. So some studies around the Barataria Bay area found that they're dying out at about a 32% rate, a mortality rate, which is pretty bad. So that's sort of highlighting that these coastal birds are a key target for conservation efforts. Roundworms are highly sensitive to oil, but they're not really critical to the food chain and they're not very highly connected. So that species if you want to evaluate things, it's not one that is really critical to, to worry about. However, there's a bit of unknowns there. Now, if you take the blue crab, and the blue crab is incredibly common across the Louisiana salt marshes, and they're also an incredibly key species because they either eat everything and in turn are eaten by pretty much everything bigger than it. So the combination of these two factors make the blue crab uh, pretty much a key item in this region. But the problem is we're not entirely sure about what the impact of oil is on this blue crab. When you analyse the results of an ecosystem in crisis, such as the Louisiana area after the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, we learn a lot about 
the roles that each species play, but also the, the way in which they respond to a disaster. And in turn, it helps us target our conservation efforts and analysis. Because the food web in an ecosystem is not something that's very straightforward. And it takes a lot of understanding and research to find out what to do. And here we are, seven years on from Deepwater Horizon, still trying to piece that together now. Lies, spies, espionage, infiltrating the highest levels of an organization or government only to strike from within. Now, these might not be talking about things that are occurring in the US political scene at the moment, but inside tropical rainforests lurk very complex, organized kingdoms of ant colonies. And inside these ant colonies, marching alongside the soldier ants, are, well, other looking soldier ants who smell the same, march the same, undertake the same task, defending the hive and also helping groom the other ants. But these aren't ants. They are in fact a form of parasitic beetle that has evolved to just fit right in, have the right shape, the right smell, the right look and mannerisms, but can sneak inside these ant colonies, play the role of an ant in the colony and then chow down on those ant larvae when no one else is suspecting anything. And these parasitic beetles have been doing this, not once, not some weird, weirdly evolved niche, but over and over again across the world. This pattern of beetle infiltration of ant colonies just keeps popping up. Researchers from Columbia University and the American Museum of Natural History, led by Joseph Park, an evolutionary biologist, have been investigating why this pattern of behavior just keeps happening. Are ants so stupid or are beetles just incredible con artists? Why does this keep occurring across the world? In fact, this research has found that there's not only one or two examples of these beetles infiltrating the ant colonies. There are at least 12 dozen different non-ant-like species of beetle infiltrating ant colonies to the same effect. And it's an amazing case of convergent evolution. The idea where something happens and a species evolves to fill an ecological niche and sort of gains an advantage that way. And lots of different starting points all end up at the same end shape or design or color or behavior simply because that's the best way to take advantage of the situation, regardless of the starting point of that species. And this is what's going on here. So Joseph Park worked together with Munitoshi Marayuma from Kyoshi University Museum, and we're investigating why this, this seems to be happening. And all of these ant-mimicking beetles all belong to the Staphylinae or rove beetle family. They, but they're not they're not related. The last time they were all related as species was about 105 million years ago. Now, that might seem weird, but that's about the same point in time where humans diverged from mice evolutionarily. So it's, they're pretty diverse and different species of beetle. And it's very, very fascinating that all of these different beetles have figured out that the best way for a free lunch is just to pretend to be an ant and take advantage of the ant ecosystem. How they do it is actually quite fascinating. Now, if you go back all the way through the chain, there's no, it's not like they've all evolved from the same con artist or spy type of beetle in the past. 
That's that's clear. They didn't all start from a, an infiltrating type beetle. They've developed from an ancestor that possessed the evolutionary traits that enabled it to mimic, for example, a gland that it can emit a defensive chemical. So now different types of these of beetles have used this to basically be able to mimic the same chemical delivered by different ant species so that they have a better chance of surviving when they interact with an ant. And over time, they've actually used this to sort of sneak their way into the colony. Now, when you look at the beetle's evolutionary body plan, the configuration of the way their limbs and body shapes are arranged, it's actually very flexible. And I think this flexibility is actually what's contributed to the evolutionary pathways of this. The, the common ancestor would have had a flexible body plan, but that makes it ideal for spying or infiltrating. The research by Parker has also shown that about 50 to 60 million years ago, when the ecosystems of the world went through substantial change, continent split and so on, there was huge amounts of changes in ants to form part of that. So similarly, at the same time, the beetle species went, oh, hang on, there's been an explosion in the changes in the amount of ants. We're going to get in on that and we're going to infiltrate. It's been a fascinating area for them to study, uh, mostly based on piecing together through DNA sequencing and reconstruction of evolutionary history, the pathways of these very divergent species. But the big challenge is how you have to find these beetles in action because you you have to have really keen eyesight to be able to pick out what is a beetle and what is an ant. It's not like the ants are some fools that have been could missing the obvious here. No, no, no. It's very difficult to tell these two apart, even for a field worker who knows what they're looking for. And all this research goes to show that convergent evolution like this is fascinating, but it really shows there's an underlying gene or sequence that has played a key role in this ant and beetle symbiosis relationship that they've got. And if you want to understand how animals adapt and exploit niches in their environment and the environment of their neighboring species, looking at this relationship between the ants and the beetles over the many, many years across the world will help us understand how we've ended up with these spies and infiltrators scattered across our ant colonies. So this is some great work being done in collaboration with Columbia University, the American Museum of Natural History, and the Kyushu University Museum. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, The Grange Point. From spiders working together to beetles infiltrating ant colonies, we've looked at survival from interesting environments through to the aftermaths of a disaster like Deepwater Horizon. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.